This is Morning Air. This is about educating a people that for 40 years haven't been given the full truth. It's time now to speak the truth. When you do things to the best of your ability, keeping Jesus number one and doing everything you possibly can for His glory, that's a winner. You are called to make the light of Christ shine brightly in the world. Bringing the light of Christ to start your day. This is Morning Air with John Morales on Relevant Radio. Four minutes after the hour, it's Friday, November 19th. Good morning and welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn Leverance. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, coast to coast across America here on the Relevant Radio Network and in the Relevant Radio app. On Fridays, we always remember the passion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friday is also the traditional day dedicated to the sacred heart of Jesus. And so once again, I want to continue to encourage you, if you can, to just spend a few moments in front of the Blessed sacrament, meditating on the passion of our Lord, using perhaps the way of the cross or the sorrowful mysteries of the Holy Rosary. Just take a moment and just say, thank you, Jesus, on this day. I want to bring in my partner, Glenn Leverance. Glenn, what are some of the stories you're following here on this Friday morning? Good morning, John in Kenosha. The uh, jury back at it for day four of deliberations in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Seems to be a a new twist each and every day. Uh, Last night, a juror, and these jurors are not sequestered, last night a juror uh, went home uh, with the 36-page jury instructions. They asked for that, and the uh, judge said, okay, since they are kind of complicated to to further study. But they'll be back at it after 9 Central this morning uh, looking to to reach a verdict. Elsewhere in news of uh, booster shots, the FDA expected to approve boosters today for Pfizer and Moderna, so folks could get that third shot coming up very soon. Very puzzling. Uh, it's it's concerning, obviously, for many Americans uh, to see that even though a lot of folks are vaccinated, we're still seeing uh, these increases, these spikes in COVID cases. So we're definitely keeping an eye on that. Uh, some uh, good news in Major League Baseball. We're always keeping an eye on uh, uh, America's pastime. Uh, MLB announced their uh, most valuable uh, player awards yesterday in both the American and National League. Uh, Glenn, uh, any surprises? Well, uh, not really in the American League. Uh, a rare two-way player in uh, modern baseball. He can pitch, and uh, he was a pretty good DH as well for the Angels. Shohei Otani picking up his first MVP award. And then on the National League side, the Phillies uh, very well compensated Bryce Harper picking up MVP number two. Absolutely. And uh, I think Otani was the talk of the town uh, this past season. I mean, the guy is amazing. He can throw, he throws 100 miles an hour and can hit a ball almost 500 feet. Uh, so a very impressive athlete and uh, obviously the pride and joy of Japan. Uh, it's great to see him win uh, deservedly the MVP. You know, those great players can make for a fun season, but it's the first time in 34 years that uh, both MVPs came from non-playoff teams. Well, there you go. Sure. So, again, a never-ending reminder that, uh, you know, it's a a team game, but uh, individually it it does uh, matter. So these two guys uh, obviously were outstanding and very deserving of the MVPs. Glenn, uh, as always, thanks so much. 
Yeah, sure thing, John. We uh, begin every hour here on Morning Air. We always give thanks every day. We give thanks for all the many blessings that we receive, and we always give thanks through the intercession of our Blessed Mother Mary, the Mother of God. So we begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, patroness of life and of relevant radio, pray for us. St. Joseph, in this year of St. Joseph, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of relevant radio, pray for us. And we invoke the Holy Spirit every hour when we pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And as we do every single hour, every morning, we always have the power scripture from the Playbook of Life, which today's edition is from John eighteen thirty seven. Pilate said to him, so you are a king, Jesus answered. You say that I'm a king. For this I was born. For this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. This verse reminds us of the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. This Sunday, we celebrate the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as the book of Revelation tells us. Jesus ultimately is in charge of our nation, of the whole world. It's not Washington. It's not Rome or any other capital in the world. Christ is our true king. There can be presidents, and there are presidents and kings and prime ministers all over the world. But only Jesus Christ is the king of the universe. Christ is the ultimate authority from whom all power and all authority comes. We must, as Catholic Christians, accept Jesus as our king. We must seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and submit our will to him in everything. All of us who are of the truth hear his voice. He speaks to us every single day, and we pray with great confidence, King Jesus, I trust in you. Now, in case you missed our uh, big announcement last hour, we have some very exciting news uh, to share with you, our Relevant Radio family. We're offering our new audio Advent calendar, daily episodes of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, brought to you by the Merry Beggars at Relevant Radio. With 25 professional actors, it's the first of its kind audio advent calendar. New episodes of A Christmas Carol will drop daily from December 1st all the way to Christmas Day on the 25th. Experience a Christmas classic the way it was intended to be told by Charles Dickens himself in 1843 London. Join your favorite characters from Scrooge to Tiny Tim in this timeless tale. So gather around your radio or your computer for a story. The whole family can enjoy the way it was done in the old days. Details about the Merry Beggars production of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol uh, are found at relevantradio.com or on the Relevant Radio app. Our number, if you want to be part of the conversation of our show, is 888-914-9149. 
Now, I want to talk about the the controversial trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, This trial has captured the attention of our nation and the mainstream media for weeks now. A young man, only 17 at the time, is charged with killing two protesters last year and wounding another during the riots in Kenosha last summer over a police shooting of a black man. Rittenhouse and his defense team has argued uh, vehemently that he never intended to kill anyone, that he was a victim and acted in self-defense. we're now here on, on day four after three days of jury deliberations. The jury still has not reached a verdict. Yesterday, the judge sent uh, the jury of seven women and five men home after nearly 24 hours of deliberating. And joining us now with much more on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and the legality of self-defense as well as the morality of the case from a Catholic perspective is our regular contributor, Mary Helen Fiorito. Mary is an attorney, public speaker, and commentator on issues involving Catholic Church teachings, administration, and religious freedom. She holds the position of the Cardinal Francis George Fellow at both the Ethics and Public Policy Center and the Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. Good morning, Mary. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. It's, it's always good to be with you. Good morning, John, and good morning to all your listeners. Mary, uh, first of all, um, as an attorney, uh, can you give us your take and give us an overview on this highly controversial uh, Rittenhouse uh, trial that's uh, really captured the attention of so many people all across our country, and it's obviously been receiving incredible media attention? Well, the the case all started um, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, as you've mentioned, which is sort of a small city. Um, somewhere between Chicago and Milwaukee. Um, it's a, you know, considered a very lovely, quaint town and isn't necessarily known for violence. So this is, it starts um, in a rather unusual way in that it's in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, a lot of people like to liken it to Mayberry in some ways, but it's a lovely little town and um, it's, uh, you know, not known for anything like this. So that's sort of the first striking aspect of it. Um, it began when uh, a black man, as you mentioned, named Jacob Blake, was shot by the Kenosha police on August 23rd of 2020. Uh, the police had numerous warrants for his arrest um, for sexual assault and for domestic abuse. And he refused to cooperate with police when they attempted to arrest him on those warrants. Uh, they had tased him twice. He resisted. Uh, he, he leaned down in his car and uh, did have a knife with him and looked like he was reaching for the knife. And uh, one of the officers shot him multiple times. Those officers were not charged, um, in, including the officer that discharged his weapon, were not charged. Um, and Jacob Blake uh, received a reduced sentence and sort of a plea bargain deal where he got two years probation. But the very fact that he was a black man who was shot by a white officer triggered all sorts of incredibly violent protests in um, Kenosha, uh, businesses being burned to the ground, millions of dollars in damage. And again, as I mentioned, Kenosha is not a, not a town in Wisconsin or the Midwest known for this kind of dramatic violence. And unfortunately, 
multiple people from other areas, including Milwaukee, some came over from Illinois, um, went either to take part in those, uh, that looting and violent reaction, or they came over uh, to help businesses, a lot of them small family businesses that were being burned to the ground. And Kyle Rittenhouse, who was 17 years old, who lived in an Illinois town called Antioch. And Antioch is about... 10 miles or so from the Wisconsin border. So um, national shows like The View and other national news outlets keep mentioning this thing that he crossed state lines with a gun. I mean, well, first of all, you know, you, you, you can barely walk out your, your door in some parts of Illinois and not be in Wisconsin. It's not at all unusual for people to go back and forth between Wisconsin and the Illinois border if you live that far north. In fact, it's not at all unusual for people to live in a town like Kenosha, but work in Illinois because the property taxes are so much lower on the Wisconsin side. So that's a very common phenomenon. So thousands of people go back and forth between Wisconsin and Illinois every day to shop, to work, et cetera, et cetera. Kyle Rittenhouse's parents are divorced. His father happens to live in Kenosha. His mother lived in Antioch. And he didn't bring a weapon across state lines. The weapon had been purchased uh, by a friend of his in Wisconsin and was being stored at his friend's stepfather's house. So he didn't have a weapon with him when he crossed over the state lines to go and take part in what he believed was defending local businesses in the small town where his dad lived. And he worked not far away. He worked in Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin, as a lifeguard, Kyle Rittenhouse did. So that kind of sets the scene for you. Um, there has been, you know, quite a bit of discussion, and I think appropriately so, about why this young 17-year-old man would have gone into this kind of situation to begin with. But he really saw himself, from what his defense lawyers say, as, as someone who liked to serve the community. He was a junior police officer uh, with the local police department. He was a lifeguard. He, was tra- he had some basic medical training, and he felt he was going there to either help the community, uh, help local businesses defend themselves, because the, the 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 thousands, not even thousands, millions of dollars in damage and looting and dumpsters, dumpsters being set on fire and businesses being set on fire, the police couldn't keep up with everything and, and nor could the fire department. So it really fell on citizens to either defend their own property or have other citizens help them defend that property. Um, was it appropriate for him to go as as a 17-year-old boy? You know, I, I don't think I would have let my children go, but, um, you know, I... I wasn't that close to the situation either. I didn't have friends whose businesses were being destroyed. So I can see both sides of the argument in that regard. Well, uh, it's somewhat uh, surprising uh, that here we are. This is uh, day four after three days of jury deliberations, uh, looking at this case intensely, uh, that there is still not a verdict. The, the people of Kenosha are extremely uh, concerned uh, with threats of violence. There's been arrests outside the courtroom. Um, what, is, uh, what is your thoughts on, on the fact that it's taking this long? Well, this is worrisome, I think, for the defense, in my opinion, um, because I think the longer that jury is out, the more likely it is that Kyle Rittenhouse is going to be charged with something. And you mentioned the protests outside the courthouse. The jury is not sequestered. Um, They are being taken back and forth every day in a bus that has curtains over the windows so that they cannot see the protesters and the protesters cannot see them. But it's very hard if a jury's not sequestered. It's very difficult, John, to keep them completely isolated from what's going on in the community. Um, the 12 people on the jury are all from Kenosha. They certainly know what happened last time. 
Um, there's tremendous fear in the community. I mean, businesses are already, already boarding up their windows, already have boarded up their windows because they are worried if he is acquitted on all the counts, then there's going to be riots again. Um, protesters outside. Uh, there was an MSNBC reporter who followed the jury bus in a car yesterday, and the judge has now banned MSNBC from even being in the courtroom. So uh, th- there, there does seem to be agitator groups who are quite well invested um, in, in terms of you know people power there outside the court in making sure that there will be a huge public reaction and it's almost like a you know a nonverbal threat to the jury if you acquit this man Kenosha is going to pay again and as I mentioned you know there was already so much loss of business and um, you know of, of life and everything else during the first round of the Jacob Blake riots I, you know, I, I saw one interview with a business owner saying Kenosha cannot go through this again we are not a big city that can absorb you know, these kinds of financial losses and business losses and, you know, uh, people are being unable simply to go to the store. You know, you're, you're, you're locked in your house because it's so dangerous you can't go out, you know. Um, so that had to have affected the jury in some way, even though I know the judge, um, Judge Bruce Schroeder, who is the presiding judge in this case, has been quite adamant with them not to read anything, not to speak to anyone but yet they're not sequestered. So, you know, it's not like it could happen intentionally, but unintentionally somebody could say, oh, gosh, you know, did you see those huge crowds already outside the courthouse? Um, and jurors could be, you know, afraid for their own safety as well. So this this case is a, is a real tinderbox. Um, I do think the, the longer the jury stays out, you know, they are, they are very carefully deliberating all of this evidence, but, you know, the, the defense attorney has already asked for mistrial um, because of the way evidence has been presented by the prosecutor. Um, it didn't seem to me in, in watching much of the trial that the prosecution had a very strong case. They are trying to allege, and I'm not sure I mentioned this yet, but at a certain point in the melee, um, the, the young man, Kyle Rittenhouse, was carrying a gun that was being stored for him in Wisconsin, so he picked up the gun and met with his friends, was, um, became involved in an altercation between three other men. Uh, he shot three of them and two of them died. Now, one of those men was beating him over the head with a, with a um, skateboard. Uh, the other had a Glock pistol, and Mr. Uh, Rittenhouse was lying on the ground at that time and thought he was going to be shot with this man's Glock pistol. So from, from my vantage point, it seems fairly clear to me that he was acting in self-defense. Uh, but the prosecution has said, no, you can't claim self-defense if you were the one that put yourself into the melee to begin with. So the very fact that he went there and inserted himself into the situation, the prosecution argues, negates his right to self-defense, which I just don't see as being either legally or morally appropriate. There's uh, there's a lot of different questions about uh, self-defense. Uh, did he know his attackers? Did he know how dangerous uh, these people were that tried to, to kill him? Uh, the, the, the videos uh, and the testimony uh, from Kyle are, are pretty evident uh, that he was afraid for his life. But from a Catholic perspective, uh, based on Catholic teaching, um, do we have the right to defend ourselves if our lives are in danger? What, what does the church say, uh, perhaps maybe the, the fifth commandment uh, can give us uh, some uh, perspective. Right. Well, you, you, of course, you have a right to defend yourself, but you also have the right to defend others. So if 
you are in your house and um, someone is breaking in and is attempting to shoot your wife, you can shoot your, you can shoot that person who is attempting to kill your wife. So you defense of self and others is an absolutely recognized moral principle in Catholic theology. Um, you know, it's there's there's often debates about the death penalty, which of course the church teaches now, and John Paul II, St. John Paul II beautifully lays this out in Evangelium Vitae, that um, the right to self-defense and defense of others still exists, and that exists not only for individuals, but also for governments and states and countries. So if you, if you have a criminal who you cannot isolate to protect the rest of the populace from this particular criminal, you have the right uh, as, a, as a government to put that person to death. Now, we would argue in, with modern penal systems, that's simply not necessary anymore. So it's almost impossible to justify the use of the death penalty because of our modern you know, prison systems that can keep people incarcerated uh, away from the rest of the general population, thus protecting that population. But you, you absolutely have a right uh, to use force, even if it's lethal force, if you believe you know, uh, truly and reasonably that someone is about to kill either you or a member of your family or even a stranger. You, you can intercede and if, if you see someone else, a small child being attacked or um, about to be killed, you can intercede on behalf of the life of that person. That is a widely recognized principle in both the moral law and the civil law. Mary, the f- final minute that we have, uh, this case is so concerning. Uh, so much politics uh, is involved. Uh, there's so much uh, media, national media attention it's crazy. It depends on what network you're watching. It's like you're in two different worlds, depending on what you're watching. Right. Uh, any thoughts on how our country is so divided at this point, and especially well, highlighted by this case? Yeah, well, it, it certainly didn't help that then Vice President and now Vice uh, President Biden called Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist. And I do hope that if he is acquitted, that the president will release a statement correcting the narrative. Um, as you say, it depends on what you're watching. You're looking at almost two completely different cases. But the media narrative um, has really, I think, harmed the ability of the defense to defend Mr. Rittenhouse, who, again, it seems clear to me, was really afraid for his life, was engaging in self-defense. Whether or not it was you know, prudent to put himself in that situation in, in the first place, that's a completely different conversation. But in, in, the, in the moments when he fired his gun, it seemed to me he was in fear of his life. Um, and it's, it's strange that it has this racial tinge to it because Mr. Rittenhouse is white and all three of the men he shot were white. Uh, a couple of them had criminal records, but, you know, um, nonetheless, they, they, were not in, they were not in prison when they were there uh, engaging in the protest. But um, this, this is all seen because it came out of that shooting of Jacob Blake as having, you know, um, racial overtones. And again, the president's calling Mr. Rittenhouse a white supremacist has added another layer of tension over that. So I would just ask your listeners, if you have one prayer to spare today, you know, say it for the people in the community of Kenosha, because they do not deserve to go through this again. Absolutely. Uh, we will definitely be, be praying for the, the good people of Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, Mary, uh, as always, I so much appreciate uh, your clear legal perspective as well as uh, your Catholic and moral perspective. Thanks so much for being with us. 
It was my pleasure. Have a wonderful weekend. You too, and, and happy Thanksgiving to you in, a, in anticipation. Mary Helen Fiorito, you can find her on Twitter at Mary Fiorito. We need to take a short break. When Morning Air continues, we'll be joined by Dr. Jim Schrader to discuss the importance of communication. The question for today, how effective and empathetic is your communication? Stay with us. There's much more to come here on Morning Air after this. From Maui to Maine, you're listening to Morning Air with John Morales. Coast to coast on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Thirty minutes after the hour, welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales. Great to be with you this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Our number, if you want to be part of the show, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Today, we're continuing our series of life lessons learned by a carless commuter. In this series with Dr. Jim Schrader, we've been talking about topics about the pursuit of health, about harmony, happiness, and heaven through stories shared and lessons learned based on his most recent book, Confessions of a Carless Commuter, What 40,000-plus motorless miles taught me about life. Now joining us is pediatric psychologist Dr. Jim Schrader to talk about life lesson number five, communication, communication, communication. The key key question uh, this morning is how effective and empathetic is your communication? Dr. Schrader is a married father of eight children. He's also an endurance athlete, vice president of the Department of Psychology and Wellness at Easter Seal. Rehabilitation Center in Evansville, Indiana. Good morning, Dr. Schrader. Thanks once again for being with us. Uh, Good to be with you again. Yeah, great morning. I love the topic. I think it's very, uh, very relevant. Uh, Communication. Uh, Can you talk about uh, uh, some keys? Uh, I know you have four keys that you want to share with us about more effective communication. Yeah, so regardless if you're introverted, extroverted, whatever your personality is, there actually are these keys to effective communication that we're going to talk about this morning. The first key is really, really focus on saying what you mean. Now, you know, I mean, it's, you know, if you minimize or exaggerate things for storytelling, I mean, that's one thing. But when things are important, you know, minimizing or exaggerating is really awful for relationships. So one of the biggest keys is to be very clear about what you mean in any given situation for communication. The second is that to always understand that each of us owns our emotions, and no matter what's occurred, nobody else is responsible for them. So, you know, we may have had difficult things come to us, or people may have done things that really frustrate or disappoint us. But at the end of the day, with good communication, we have to own our emotions. And so in our world, we talk about the difference between an I statement. An I statement is something like, I feel frustrated because, and whatever the reason is, versus a you statement is something like, well, you make me sick, or you make me whatever, or you are, uh, which is obviously not really effective. So if we're really going to have communication around issues that are important, we have to have I statements as being the central focus, not you statements. The third is 
this is hard for us, always work to focus your criticism on a particular situation and not on a person as a whole. So it's it's normal, especially when you're together with somebody for a long time or you've worked with them for a long time. We all see trends and patterns in other people. But if you start your communication with something like, let's say, for example, you feel like your spouse is a slob and you start your communication with a critical statement about them as a person, not about the situation, which may evolve, but cleaning up the kitchen, it's going to be ineffective. It's going to get defensive and it's not going to work out. And so the fourth one is always strive to be transparent and honest. So if you make a mistake, own up to it. If something works out, though, acknowledge that, too. You know, I mean, you don't have to be, it's not good to be falsely modest about things that work out. And so as we start this morning, really, those are the four key hallmark communication um, things we should strive, no matter what your personality is. And they, they make a lot of sense, and uh, and I can't help but think of a, a simple situation like uh, being in the kitchen and saying, you know, you know honey, I love you, but you really got to work on getting this kitchen a little bit cleaner. So you're not attacking the person, you're attacking the sink. Yeah, in some ways, right. The sink is able to take it better than the person. I mean, we got to start with the sink there. They're a little bit more uh, resilient and, hard, I guess, hard there. So, But that is the key, right? So if you start off with how all the ways that you don't you know, like them as a person or you frustrate them, they frustrate you as a person, the likelihood of having a reasonable conversation back and forth about ways you can be more cooperative and collaborative is going to be limited. And so that is a huge key, but we all kind of fall prey to often starting with the critique of the person, not the situation. And, and Dr. Schrader, um, your last key about being transparent and honest, I think people can sense, especially in in-person communication, they can look you in the eye, they can tell when, when you're not being honest, when you're not being transparent, when you're holding something back, when you're looking away and you're not truly communicating uh, that sincere honesty. I th- it, absolutely. Even from the youngest of age, kids actually even are very good at reading their parents and knowing when their parents are really saying something that's truthful versus something that's eh, not quite truthful or, or actually just all outright deceitful. And so we have this kind of intuitive built-in sense about us that really can kind of read people more than you know we want really feel comfortable with sometimes. And so one of the golden, golden keys to good communication is just transparency. And what I make it clear with people is transparency doesn't mean you have to spill every detail about situations. You know, privacy is definitely important in a lot of ways. What transparency is, is that when you say something, make sure that you can hear yourself say it alone and you're comfortable with what you're saying. And that it's, you know, again, doesn't have to have every detail But it's true, and you believe it's true. Because if you don't, I can guarantee you the people around you are really going to kind of question you on that. Absolutely. Now let's talk about some ineffective ways to communicate. Yeah. So John Gottman years ago, who's who's kind of a well-known marriage researcher, said that there's really what he calls the four horsemen. And we go into the book, we go into much more detail about all the stuff we're talking today. But the four horsemen are these. And they are stonewalling. So stonewalling is the idea whether you psychologically shut down a conversation or whether you just physically walk out of the room. It's different than saying, hey, you know what, maybe we'll take a break or I want to come back to this. But stonewalling is just literally shutting down a conversation in whatever way you can. The second one is defensiveness. So defensiveness is kind of when somebody says something to you that you don't like but you probably know has some element of truth. It's when you immediately kind of rise up in anger 
And sometimes that rising up in anger leads to what we call reactive blaming. Well, you quickly say, well, I wouldn't have done this but except for you doing whatever it was, right? So defensiveness is just kind of like rising up in somewhat of a prideful way against something else that someone said. The third is criticism. Again, we talked about this a little bit before. We're not talking about focusing on a complaint or concern about a specific situation, but criticism is really just working to degrade another person for their areas of weakness or challenge. And so we, we struggle with that a lot. And the fourth one, John Gottman really felt like this was the worst of all of them, and it's what we call contempt. Contempt is the, the best way I can describe it to people in a short way is that it's kind of just showing disgust through maybe your nonverbals, like you eye roll or you just do things that you clearly like just conveys your disgust about the other person. And contempt really kind of lets uh, it just kind of cuts us off at the knees. We just feel really poorly when we someone acts that way towards us. And the thing I point out about all four of these is that we're all going to do them at some point. But there's two things to know. One, the more we do these in our relationships and our communication, the worse it's going to for sure get. And every human being has a default to one or more of them. So you should ask yourself if you're listening today, am I a stonewaller? Do I get defensive? Do I get critical? Or am I kind of contemptuous? Where, where do I find myself the most? And that's where really where we should focus our attention. Um, Dr. Schrader, I can't help but think of uh, the importance of empathy, trying to put yourself in that other person's shoes uh, when trying to deal in a better way with, with some of, of these, uh, of the four horsemen as you describe them. Yeah, really, if you think about it, the four horsemen are just really kind of a failure in empathy, right? Because it's not an issue of having disagreement or conflict. That's inevitable in relationships. And actually, relationships that shy away from conflict are typically the least healthy of all. But in the end of the day, the four horsemen have to do with the fact that you're really not trying to put yourself in that other person's place. You're really not trying to consider like why they might be you know, struggling with a particular area or you know, why you, th- you are unwilling to have a conversation that is really actually an important conversation. And so and ultimately, that's why that key question for this chapter is just how effective and empathetic is my communication. From a uh, Catholic Christian perspective, uh, how much can uh, prayer help us uh, to discern the most prudent, the best way, the most empathetic way to deal when we come into these kind of situations? Well, if you think about it, when we talk about this a lot, I know you do on Relevant Radio, prayer is a force, a form of communication itself, right? You know, prayer is communication between us and God, but it's also communication within ourselves, too. And so I think that the more that we engage in intentional prayer, you know, whether it's reflective, meditative, whatever kind of prayer it is, the more, in essence, we're trying to push away all that's around us in the silence of our souls and, and really kind of reflecting on you know, how much am I communicating in the way that Jesus would have me communicate? And I, there's a really neat scene for those, um, and I, I, you know, who've ever watched The Chosen. Um, and I want to just kind of say this. I think that very often, it's in a, and as we should, we focus a lot on the content of Jesus's communication. Of course, that's the Word of God, and we should. I think we miss it, though, because we don't focus as much on the process or the style of his communication. And that's where there's so much richness, especially coming from myself as 
a psychologist that we could learn about the ways to communicate. And so in the scene in The Chosen of the Samaritan Woman at the Well, um, if you really think about that scene and you even almost forget about what he's saying and look at how he's communicating, you can see that it's so much of the process of that communication conveys empathy, conveys truth-seeking, conveys transparency, conveys just an overall beautiful idea of what authentic, real, good communication looks like. Um, and that's something I think we just we should all consider is, what's the style and process of Jesus' communication, not just his content? Great point, and, and I think we can learn a lot from the Master, from our Lord Jesus Christ, who asked a lot of good questions to get to the bottom of a situation. So, uh, and, and, and also, I, I just want to add a, a final thought. Uh, we can't forget uh, the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, in difficult situations, the Holy Spirit will actually help us with the right words, the right comforting words, the empathetic words that we need to deal with a, a tough situation. Absolutely. Yeah, again, it's all about communication, right? The Holy Spirit is working through us to communicate more fully what we should be doing. And I think that, you know, there's so much more in this chapter that we're not going to get to today, and I encourage reader or listeners to check it out or whatever. But um, just consider today what you can do to communicate more as Jesus would have you. Great, great uh, topic. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about your book? Yeah, on Amazon or james-schrader.com. Excellent. Uh, Confessions of a Carless Commuter with 40,000 plus motorless miles taught me about life. Uh, Dr. Schrader, as always, thank you so much. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to you in anticipation. And to you too. Thank you so much. Dr. Jim Schrader, pediatric psychologist, uh, vice president in the Department of Psychology and Wellness at Easter Seals Rehabilitation Center. We need to take a, a short break when we come back. Uh, Khaled Jacob, the president and CEO of Nativity Pilgrimage, will be with us to talk about the importance of pilgrimages. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio Line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. From Maui to Maine, you're listening to Morning Air with John Morales. Six minutes after the hour. Welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales, along with Glenn Leverance. Good to be with you this morning. Now I want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, pilgrimages. Uh, as you may have heard, Drew Mariani is traveling to the Holy Land in late February with Nativity Pilgrimage, which is one of our Relevant Radio underwriting sponsors. A pilgrimage can be a life-changing event, whether it be to Italy, France, Spain, or the Holy Land. It's a time to reflect on our journey with Christ. The gospel comes to life, and you will never be the same. Keep in mind that a pilgrimage is not a vacation. I've been blessed to go on uh, pilgrimages to Rome, to Lourdes, and to Fatima, but the Holy Land is still on my bucket list of things to do. Joining us now to talk about the importance of pilgrimages is uh, Khaled Jacob, President and CEO of Nativity Pilgrimage. Good morning, Khaled. Uh, welcome to Morning Air. Good to be with you. Thank you, John. Good morning. Thank you for hosting me. Of, it's an honor. Of course. Our, our joy and pleasure to be with you. Uh, Khaled, first of all, what inspired you to start uh, your organization, Nat Nativity uh, Pilgrimage? It was a challenge, John. You know, it's uh, 
from question, could you imagine the Holy Land without Christians? Uh, from there, everything started. Uh, you know, the Christian, I always believe that instead to give support for somebody, give him a job. Uh, you know, instead you give him a fish, teach them how to fish. And from there, uh, when I came to United States in 2008, and I see a lot of opportunity to organize and lead pilgrimage from United States, especially from the Catholic Church, to the Holy Land. By my mind, I will help uh, the local here to be closer to God, uh, to experience a life-changing um, uh, experience, to have the gospel. When they read the gospel, I discover they need to know the sites, so they connect it together. They connect the sites, they connect, you know, when the gospel has become really alive. And from the other end, uh, as I'm very well connected with the church back home in the Holy Land, uh, I, I think this is the best opportunity for people to create a job in souvenir shop, in workshop, in guiding, in hotels. So this is the, the purpose. This is the strong call to start Nativity Pilgrimage. And Jacob, uh, for you, this is very special because uh, you were born and raised in Bethlehem, and uh, most of your family, including your parents, are, are still there. Uh, can you talk about some of these uh, moving sites in the Holy Land, uh, like Cana and Bethlehem, the Mount of Olives? There's so many uh, that you've had the experience to be able to, to not only travel, but to bring uh, so many uh, pilgrims to these sites. John, it's... Um let me tell you something. First, um, as much as I can talk about it, I'm still missing a lot. Um, every site, it's very unique by itself, and especially when you connected the sites. You know, um, for me, I do something very special for my pilgrimage. Uh, and all my pilgrims, they have this experience. We in the, in the Sea of Galilee on the boat, we turned the engine off, and we celebrated Mass on the boat. And I just told them, close your eyes for a minute. And when the gospel was reading, think about it, and just let the Lord touch you there. Just imagine this experience. When they visit the Bethlehem, my, my city, they have the experience to to be on the same spot where our Lord. You know, we don't think about even one of the great saints for the church. The Lord himself, he become a flash on that manger. So this is a touch heart. You know, pilgrimage, it's not a place you go and um, and travel. And I told all the people, if you think you're going to go to travel to Holy Land, you're totally mistaken. You'd rather save your money, go somewhere else. Pilgrimage... That's people leaving their comfort, leaving their home, seeking God in their life. They go to do sacramental, they go to do sacrifices, penance. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of things. It's a lot of preparation to be on pilgrimage. And this is why when you go to the Holy Land, especially, it's different than any other site even. It's going to call you. Every site is going to be unique for someone in way or other. Mount of Petitude, um, Cana, where the Lord made his first miracle. Uh, it's, each one of these sites, it's, it's very important. For me personally, Cana, it's always a very special place because it's a huge devotion for Our Lady. 
And for me, how she asked him to do the first miracle, it's been a lot. Do whatever he tells you. It's got to also be uh, special for couples, for married couples, to see that the site of uh, our Lord's first miracle um, was actually a wedding feast. It is. Um, there are some breathtaking images on your uh, website, uh, nativitypilgrimage.com. Uh, uh, they're spectacular sites of the, all the different places uh, that uh, you uh, go on pil- pilgrimage. Uh, can you talk about uh, some of these places and some of these other um, special locations that you've brought so many people to? Um we do pilgrimage for every Catholic site. Start from, um, you know, when I started in two, 2012, we did only for three years only the Holy Land. And then I find out that my client, they want to go experience somewhere else. And that's why we start adding Europe. So we go to Italy, Medjugorje. We go to East Europe, Poland, Prague. We go to France, Spain, Marian Shrine, um, all the sites in Europe. We go Greece and Turkey in the footsteps of St. Paul and the early church. We recently started doing South America, Argentina, Peru, and Brazil. And um, we go almost 23 different destinations. I have almost every year around 200 pilgrimages scheduled with the group leader like church or organization. But we do almost 100 uh, plus to Holy Land every year. So you know the holy land experience is not it's not like any other pilgrimage it's uh, you know it's it's the it's the real it's the it's the gospel it's the lord jesus so you, you go even the lord himself he did pilgrimage uh, uh around 33 times the lord jesus went to jerusalem on pilgrimage and let me tell you something very special for you Nazareth, it's higher than jerusalem but always we said went up to jerusalem because Jerusalem is the most holy place on earth. So that's why all the sites we go, it's unique, it's special, but the Holy Land is different, especially Jerusalem. Uh, Khaled, I would imagine that um, in addition to uh, the Holy Land, uh, the Marian uh, sites, uh, Lourdes, Fatima, are also very special, very popular. I have had the opportunity to visit uh, those uh, wonderful places. Oh, I'm glad you did. Uh, I mean, it's again, the pilgrim, it's something very special that the person who leave everything to go seek the Lord in his life, seek what the, the Lord will in your life. And, uh, and this is, it's very unique experience. And that's why we work spiritually in preparation for the people. We send them several documentation to read, to be ready, you know, monthly and uh, spiritually as well physically to be on pilgrimage. How does uh, someone uh, prepare uh, spiritually uh, when they uh, want to go on one of your uh, pilgrimages? You know, we send them several... uh, It's up to where they go. Uh, We send them several uh, Bible um, uh, verbs, so they can go and read it. Uh, we send them some uh, questions. They have to answer, uh, you know, are you ready to accept the Lord in your life? Are you ready to become disciple for the Lord? So it's uh, the pilgrim, the person who go seeking for the Lord in his life, and when he come back, he have to 
start to be apostle for the Lord. And this is how we look at it. It's For us, it's very devotion. It's not only touring. Um, reading the gospel, pray the rosary, that's a great weapon for Catholic. Um, um, you know, it's um, be in, in, uh, in confession, um, read about the site, about the miracle happen on the site. You know, when they go to Fatima, they have to read a little bit about Our Lady of Fatima when they go to Lourdes, the same story. So there's a, there's a lot of preparation we send to the people to be ready and in this challenge and life-changing. Of course, for more information, our listeners can go to uh, relevantradio.com uh, slash holy land. Uh, Khaled, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, so much appreciate uh, your insights. Uh, this is not just a business. It truly is an apostolate of evangelization for you. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Wish you all the best and good luck. Many blessings to you. Khaled Jacob, the president and CEO of Nativity Pilgrimage. It's now time for another episode of Glenn Story Corner. Well, we were still playing baseball at the start of this month, even though snow flurries are flying now. But we've got one more baseball story for you. Our story today called Holding All the Cards. It's from Caroline Fanning and Reader's Digest. When 10-year-old Reese Osterberg lost her Fresno County, California home to one of the largest wildfires in state history early in the fall, she had a very pressing concern. Did anyone grab her baseball cards? No one had. With a house full of kids and dogs and a farm's worth of horses to evacuate, the family forgot the cards amid the stress. Naturally, the diehard San Francisco Giants fan and Little League lefty with a swing as smooth as butter was upset. When she watched the Giants on TV, she'd lay out each player's card on the floor in his corresponding field position. I like baseball cards, said Reese, because they're pictures of people doing happy stuff, doing what they love and what I love. Reese's loss touched the hearts of the Fresno County Fire Department, which posted her story on its Facebook page with a plea to help Reese restock her card collection. That, in turn, touched the heart of Kevin Ashford. Ashford knew exactly where Reese could find replacement cards, in his garage. He had more than 25000 in his collection with a ballpark value of thirty-five dollars to $50,000. Ashford had been thinking about selling them when he saw the fire department's post. I wasn't really doing anything with them, he says. I thought that I could take care of this problem rather quickly. First responders transported the cards from Ashford's garage to theirs and then surprised Reese during a tour of the firehouse. Towers of Ashford's cards were stacked in front of the fire engine. After thanking Ashford, especially for the Buster Posey, her favorite giant, Reese, ever the team player, was quick to share the thousands of baseball cards she received from Ashford and donors around the country with other kids affected by California's Creek Fire. She's gotten so many, in fact, she started Cards from Reese, an organization that collects cards and donates them to those in need. Reese is especially happy to part with the Los Angeles Dodgers cards. As she explains it, Go Giants! From Hebrews 13, 16, Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 
Thanks so much, uh, Glenn. A quick reminder, uh, Advent starts uh, a week from this Sunday. It's still not too late to sign up for Father Rocky's Advent Inspirations. These are short daily audio reflections emailed to you every morning during the Advent season. You can sign up for Father Rocky's free Advent Inspirations at relevantradio.com slash Advent or click on the banner on the Relevant Radio app. That'll do it for this edition of Morning Air. For Glenn Leverens, for the entire team, I'm John Morales. Thanks for joining us. The Patrick Madrid Show is next.